What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. I'm joined by prolific author Peter McLaren. He is the author of over 70 books. His latest is a comic book titled Breaking Free, The Lives and Times of Peter McLaren. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I'm moved by this um, book, and uh, I want to start by talking a little bit about how um, in your book um, you are depicted as this you know, white, working-class youngster who becomes radicalized. Tell me about the moment of rebirth, when you were um, awakened to not only the the history you had been taught, um, but also your own power and responsibility to become an actor and co-creating a new history of the world. Well, that's that's very beautifully put. and it's a great question. Uh, the comic book, um, actually, uh, I realize, I recognize that there are comic books uh, or what we call graphic novels. I mean, they're actually different in many ways. So my new book is actually a uh, combination, I guess, of it's a hybrid of a comic and a graphic novel. It basically begins with my upbringing in Toronto um, and in Winnipeg and uh, basically being born into a a very conservative family uh, that had a a kind of military overture to it. My dad fought uh, for the Royal Canadian Engineers in the Second World War. For six years, he was overseas fighting the Nazis. And my uncle uh, was... Uh, actually a war hero. He helped sink the Bismarck battleship and got the Distinguished Service Medal pinned on him uh, by King George VI. Um, He went and joined with uh, the Royal Navy, actually, during the war. And I was very proud of my my uncle and very proud of my dad. But it was a very conservative military sort of um, ambiance that uh, percolated through our lives uh, when I was growing up. The, the comic book traces my learning about the Vietnam War through professors I had in Canada um, who had been, you know, teaching in the U.S. They were American citizens, but they decided to resist the war and burn the draft cards and come to Canada 
and some of them actually became professors of mine. And they educated me about what was happening south of the border. And so the comic book goes into my trip to San Francisco and Los Angeles and to Berkeley, joining in with the Berkeley protests, etc. And there's a kind of a surreal sense to my life during those times because I met uh, Timothy Leary, uh, who was the high priest of LSD. I met him at the Audubon <laughs> Ball at the, um, I guess what you call the Fillmore. And uh, his head said, it went through several names. I think it was the Fillmore maybe when I was there. But anyway, I met Leary and got into the drug scene, met poet Allen Ginsberg, who uh, gave me some good pointers in terms of my writing, encouraged me to continue. Then um, I helped uh, form a little, uh, in, a, in a very modest way, a, a kind of a, uh, a bit of a pipeline for resistors to come to Canada. I just set out pamphlets where, where to, who to contact, where you could stay when you came across the border and people that uh, would be supportive of you. And so um, then it goes from there to my teaching days as an elementary school teacher in the Jane Finch corridor in Toronto. And a lot of the comic book puts into visual context um, some of the episodes from my book, Life in Schools. And uh, which came out, I think, in Canada in 1979-1980. And then it goes from my days as a elementary school teacher to a college professor, to a university professor. It covers uh, UCLA in particular, um, the 2005-2006 events that targeted me uh, as the most dangerous professor at UCLA. And that was when I was working for uh, the Bolivarian Revolution and, uh, and Hugo Chavez's government um, back in those years. And kind of uh, repressive apparatus of the state was really consolidating during those years. And, uh, you know, FBI was in the UCLA library trying to find out what uh, radical students, what kind of books they were uh, withdrawing from the library, et cetera, et cetera. And they targeted 30 professors at UCLA. And I was, they put me on top of the list. They called us the dirty 30. So the comic book kind of goes into that. And then it talks a little bit about, you know, my sort of political purview today and the need uh, for socialist alternative to capitalism. It does feature people that it, in fact, uh, influenced me and give me a lot of insights into uh, into politics and relationship between, you know, the individual and society and social movements, etc. So I do try to honor um, about a half a dozen uh, people who did, in fact, um, help um, socialize me. <laughs> into a, a more uh, progressive radical politics, and then, more militant politics, in fact. And so it's going to be a controversial book. Uh, um, it's designed to reach a younger audience, um, possibly high school students or, you know, undergraduates in university. 
Yeah, and it also deals with my sort of move into liberation theology as well. My influence, uh, the influence that liberation theology, largely from America Latina, has had on me. So it covers a lot of ground. <laughs> you know, when I think about uh, your story, I think about the importance of the singularity of life and yet how none of us make it along, right? Like we all have very unique stories and there is that essence that of the individual in all of us. However, none of us are can ever be independent of each other, independent of nature. We are always interdependent. And I, I guess what, what I'm most moved by is your ability to weave both um, that history, you know, and to bring your students along to uh, awaken them, right, to to what is our responsibility yeah. of what we're co-creating? Because, you know, we are always in school. We have canons that we are taught, right? There are stories, there are histories of yeah. discovery, histories that this was terra nullius, you know, that nothing was here before yeah. the conquest began. So... How do we um, how do we find as educators? How do we guide our students to see the boundaries, the limitations of those stories we have learned, and what is yet to be unlearned? Yeah. Because so much of it is a need to unlearn. You know, the the education right. of empire and colonial conquest as something that's natural and right. You know, all revolutionary consciousness, I think, begins with praxis and, and reflecting on, you know, one's lived experiences. And a lot of um, what happened to me uh, happened um, just by by chance. And for instance, in, in the comic, I'm, I'm um, you know, on a bus and I'm a Greyhound bus. I hitchhiked actually um, about halfway from uh, Toronto um, to uh, San Francisco, but I took a Greyhound bus. Uh, part of the way, and I was, um, I met an African-American uh, woman who was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, and uh, we started up a conversation, and she told me a little bit about the Black Panthers and Black Panther Party in Oakland, and I was really intrigued, and when I was in um, San Francisco, I made a trip to Oakland, and I met some of the Panthers, for instance, and, you know, meeting the Black Panthers and meeting, um, you know, activists in basically in various communities and then having literature presented to me that could help me deepen my understanding of my own experiences. Because as the great uh, educator, Miles Horton, who ran the Highlander School in Tennessee, uh, he said, you only learn from experiences that you learn from. And that's, you know, it sounds like a simple statement, but I think it's quite profound. Um, Miles, I had an opportunity uh, to meet Miles Horton, and uh, that was an incredibly powerful experience. Miles, uh, when he ran the Highlander School, was the only place in the United States where black folks and white folks actually would meet and strategize together. Um, and uh, the Klan, you know, attacked Miles, attacked the organization. The state shut down Highlander School. Rosa Parks was at the Highlander School just weeks before she famously refused to give up her seat and go to the back of the bus. 
Um, so a lot of it is just, you know, being on a trajectory and then and making the most of experiences that that you have and opportunities that you have to meet people, to talk with people, to gain, engage in dialogue with people. Like in 1985, um, I was introduced to Paolo Ferri at a conference in Chicago. In that meeting, it wasn't exactly a chance meeting. It was a set, it was a meeting where friends of Paulo set up, you know, an encounter between us. But that proved to be one of the most important meetings of my life. I began a a friendship with Paulo Ferri, and through these elders, my life was reshaped. You go through a process of self and social formation. And um, and it has to do with taking advantages of moments of possibility that can help deepen your understanding uh, of the world around you and ways in which you can become an author and a protagonist of your own story. I've just been very fortunate that I've been able to meet people that have inspired me and that continue to inspire me. People like Noam Chomsky, for instance, when when I was going through uh, the Dirty 30, um, you know, uh, attack back in 2004, 2005, one of the people that stepped up to defend me was, was Chomsky, and I had never actually met him. And I just thought, this is remarkable that, you know, somebody as um, brilliant and as influential as Chomsky would go to bat for somebody that uh, he had never met. It's just been a life of being inspired by others and uh, opening myself up to that inspiration, you know, uh, not trying to claim that inspiration is, is simply being self-generated. It's generated in contact I have with other people, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's the sense that we do things together in connection with others. You know, Eric Fromm, uh, a famous member of the Frankfurt School, uh, wrote that love is not something that we fall into, right? But it's it's a, a kind of praxis. It's, it's an activity that we engage in for the purpose of resolving the anxiety that I think all of us face uh, through our awareness of our separateness, especially in capitalist society. Our separatists, uh, you know, how capitalist society creates this sense of false unity among people. And love is a, is a way we try to actually unite with another. Uh, and love, in this sense, I think, is, is a kind of source of power. It's a desire to give freely simply because we can and choose to. And so, in other words, uh, love in capitalist society seems to be more based on contract um a kind of what a a source of of obligation or kind of false giving um and so uh radical love what i what lilia monzo and i call red love uh involves an intimate knowledge of others a celebration of them in their difference from us Uh, meeting indigenous groups, for instance, and um, indigenous leaders in in Mexico, in Purapecha, the Tarahumara, or the Raramuri, for instance, meeting them, visiting their communities. There's just no substitute for that. And not everyone gets an opportunity to um, travel extensively 
you know, I'm very grateful that I've been able to do that. And I've been able to, you know, have the opportunity to go and make contact with community leaders and people that have been so inspirational. For instance, uh, just uh, last year, I met Dolores Huerta. And that was incredible. And it's, you know, it's been a long time coming. And so you meet someone in person, they're welcoming, they're open. That inspires you to read more about their their life history. And... And by reading about their life histories, it gives you um, more insight into how you can deepen your own praxis, how you can deepen your own politics. And it helps you to resort your priorities because, you know, the educational system today, especially with the corporatization of education, the businessification of education, we get uh, stupidified sometimes, the stupidification I get um, ground down sometimes. You need to get a kind of um, an injection (laughs) of inspiration now and again to keep your priorities straight. That's very important for us. And just everyday politics can just be so stressful. The, The question for me, though, is we as a people have power if we recognize that we are not alone but when we sit alone in our little rooms watching the television we accept that that's the way history is right that's the way it's done that we have a superpower with the military might that can destroy the world many times over and so everybody must just do whatever this government de- declares but as an instructor right. as an educator i think we have a higher responsibility how do we invite our students into activate that sense of um, autonomy, that sense of, um, you know, co-creative power that allow us to not only envision a society where this cannot happen, but also a society where democracy is a reality. This is a key question because, I mean, even in the case of, of, of Venezuela, for instance, the Bolivarian Revolution the, the, the sense of self-organization, the sense of political activism can no longer rely on the state as it once did, as much as it did when Chavez was in power, for instance. But I think the point, I think the lesson that we can learn is that abstract political discourse, right, that, that's grounded really in global proposals, um, if it's aimed at the society or political situation, if they, if, if they don't go hand in hand with solving the immediate problems of people, um, then there's no room for them. I mean, there's no room for this abstract political discourse, and this is what we're seeing. Um, if you're going to have global proposals, they've got in some way to go hand in hand with solving the immediate problems of people in their communities. The question is, grassroots organizations that have uh, uh, an understanding of the larger global trajectory, but they gain their credibility around resolving concrete problems through self-organization, accompanied by democratic teaching processes. And so this is how popular organizations can achieve a capacity that enhances their own autonomy. And that's so important because um, you're right. People just sort of follow, you know, what they read. They're so exhausted, I think, 
by everyday life under capitalism. They just seem not to have the energy or the will right now to sort of develop community alliances. But I've been emboldened and I've been encouraged by what I've seen, for instance, uh, here in, um, in Orange County, for instance, with uh, parent groups like Padres Unidos, just parents that have come together uh, and decided that they were going to, uh, they're going to A, read Paulo Freire, and they were going to learn a little bit about, you know, the new Jim Crow, this, uh, the school to prison pipeline. They have study groups. They go into, you know, juvenile hall. They, they work with, with the mothers of children that are in juvie, are in juvenile hall. Uh, groups like Padres Unidos, there's, there's been fights around sanctuary cities for um, undocumented, mostly Mexicanos, but not solely Mexicanos. Um, and uh, there's the creation of sanctuary cities. So there, there are popular movements that are gaining strength. You know, I'm encouraged. Again, I've, I, as I always say, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. And the difference between optimism and hope, of course, as Cornell West had, um, said once, is hope always needs to be conjugated with struggle, right? If hope isn't conjugated with struggle, then it's simply a form of sort of false optimism. You know, the, the, the popular leftist sectors in many countries, for instance, in, in Latin America, uh, don't constitute a nationwide political force, but they can work at least at the level of being a moral authority. And I think that um, that in itself is something really important as they're working to gain greater nationwide uh, political visibility. Um, they can serve as an amazing moral authority. This moral authority can serve as a regeneration that could relaunch, for instance, debates around socialism. You know, we're seeing discussions of socialism a little bit more in, in the, the U.S. these days with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for instance. Um, but the problem with this discussion of socialism is that when politicians are talking about socialism and those who might, might be in favor of socialism have to tone down their ideas to a kind of social democracy, for instance, redistribution of wealth, that kind of discourse. And that's not real socialism. So you're sort of starting from behind the line, <laughs> unfortunately. How do, you but, define, uh, how do you define um, socialism for your students from a Marxist humanist perspective? Well, that's very interesting. Um, and it's imp and a, I think it's a, a very important question that um that we need to look at we have to create a social universe outside of the value form of labor in other words by value i mean monetized labor we need to transcend basically wage labor and we have to move beyond that and um a good way to start of course is with you know redistribution of capital to labor. What we're seeing now is a movement of capital, right, from labor, right, to the wealthy class, to the monetary classes. And so that's a good first step. 
but it's basically a way of 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 moving towards a non wage labor universe based on profits based on the accumulation or augmentation of value it's a, a way of creating a social universe where people no longer have to sell their labor power for a wage and labor power is interesting that was one of the insights by marx he distinguished between labor and labor power labor power is our capacity to labor so when we work we're basically not just selling our labor but we're selling basically our entire lives so we're going to show up at a certain place at a certain time come hell or high water and engage in this um, morally reprehensible uh social form which is wage, wage labor there was a time Sylvia where working for a wage and the minimum wage and the, the notion of wages being determined abstractly by the marketplace that was considered a great evil and over time we've just accepted wage labor as a kind of truism as something that can't be changed and it just seems to make sense that you know you do this labor for me and I'll get, give you this amount of money the issue of poverty and survival tax policy minimum wage funding of public schools funding of universities banking laws labor laws public health care disability benefits you name it all of this is an infrastructure that facilitates uh, more than it helps in many instances uh the perpetuation of poverty people very often don't understand why people in poor communities in barrios all across for instance in the united states why poverty seems to perpetuate itself they don't understand that from a kind of sociological perspective they don't understand the importance of having a social safety net and what happens with neoliberal uh economic policies that constantly undercut the social safety net constantly create cycles of disenfranchisement it's noteworthy i think to understand the pressures that are put on people in marginalized working class um immigrant communities in the United States and the the social forces that uh impact them and the lives of people on a daily basis and how difficult it is to take action uh i remember um years and years ago in argentina for instance um when uh during a monetary crisis and the people in the working class communities would go out with pots and pans you know and protests and there would be blockades of uh highways and actually the middle class was affected too and the middle class would go to the banks and they try to withdraw money and there'd be no money in the bank account um and so they made alliances with the working class and that lasted uh for a few months until the money started to reappear in the bank accounts again and then they just said goodbye to their working class comrades and went on living 
you know, their middle class lives. Uh, and those alliances, uh, didn't, you know, didn't remain. They were just immediately severed once once the uh, the middle class, you know, uh, um, groups got the money back in their back in town. So. We've come to the end of our show, Peter, and I, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today. I think that the questions you raised are very important and integral to transform not just education but a society as a whole. Right. I you know, I think that's really the point. Absolutely the point. We need to ask those questions, and we need to ask them now, because I think time's running out. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant, an artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.